Good morning, everyone. I am um, always excited to teach the scriptures to you. Uh, I really am. I, I, I tried to think this morning of a time where I haven't been excited. Uh, but I'm especially excited this morning. And the reason is maybe let me let you in on, you know, you sort of open the hood. What goes on during the week when it's sermon prep week? Um, it's a process. Monty would say it's a process too. And we have our processes very similar. We're trained and equipped and it takes hours. And, and, and typically, typically, 10% of the time, okay, I'm just thinking back over a 19-year career of being a teaching pastor, 10% of the time, it's hard. The text is hard. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And my eyeballs first read it, there's great fear and trembling, especially in the book of Isaiah, right? I'm going to have a conversation with Isaiah. When I get to heaven, I'm sure. But see, I'll know everything then. I won't need to ask him. Life is hard. I'm not doing well. Marriage has got some tension in it. Kids are struggling. Okay, that's 10%. 90%, no, 80%. I can't do math. That's why they don't let me add money around here, okay? 80% of the time is this just a sweet spot. Open the scriptures. Go through the process, God's sustaining, soul-satisfying grace, and I'm excited to teach, right? Just solid, so good for me. I can't remember a time where I studied a passage and I went, that doesn't mean anything to me. I wasn't affected. So, and then there's probably 10% of the time, 5 or 10% of the time, that you feel the white, as I describe it, hot conviction of God upon your soul and the great encouragement of the Lord Jesus to change and grow at the very same time. That's where I've been all week. So if it ain't no good this morning, it's your fault, the listener. <laughs> Because I am as fired up to teach. I had a great time with the Lord this week. I, I worshiped. I adored him. I thanked him. I wept. I laughed. I danced yesterday when Jenna was at the women's retreat. And I can dance really well. <laughs> right. So I am so encouraged this morning to open this passage up. I do pray and have prayed that it would affect you as it has affected me. God, I thought I'd got all these tears out, but the older you get as a man, the more your hormones continue to get messed up. <laughs> D.A. Carson in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, and I put some resources for you on your outline. Priorities from Paul and his prayers he asks a great question in this opening chapter. He says, what is the most urgent need in the Western church? And after listing a lot of potential answers, he lands the plane, if you would, with this. The one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. When it comes to knowing God, we are a culture of the spiritually stunted, 
So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs, and these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of our own happiness and fulfillment. God simply becomes the great being who, potentially at least, meets your needs and fulfills your aspirations. We think rather little of what he is like, what he expects of us, and what he seeks in us. We are not captured by his holiness and his love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. Carson goes on to say, the truth is, I am a part of what I condemn. And when I read those words, I said, yeah, me too. But here's the deal. I don't want to be. <laughs> that is the sign of God's great work in us. And here's what's beautiful. One of the crucial and foundational ways we know God is through prayer. Spiritual, persistent, biblical-minded, informed prayer. As Robert Murray McShay says, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. I read a little illustration this week. It's true. 50 seminary students were secretly surveyed about how regular and robust and consistent their times in the scriptures and prayer are during the week. Only three said it was consistent. I thought about how painful it would be if we uncovered the lives of Christians in terms of their prayer and Bible intake. And I don't say any of that to shame you or me. I'm like you, I think I'm looking for solutions. I am a fellow struggler who has had great seasons of engagement with God and great seasons of dryness. And I know which one is better. So what are we to do? How can we move forward and grow in this most crucial area? D.A. Carson says again, oh, we must admit that we are better at organizing than agonizing in prayer. Better at administering than interceding. Better at fellowship than fasting. Better at biblical articulation than spiritual adoration. And God help us. Better at preaching than praying. At this point in my journey, I am sad to say I'm better at preaching than praying. But I, I was making up some lost ground this week, and it was so good. I'm an ugly prayer too, gosh almighty. Oh, did I just say gosh almighty? <laughs> I guess sorry. Gosh oh, Moses. <laughs> that was a praise. That was a praise right there. Can somebody have me a Kleenex, please? I'm done. No more crying. That's the second one you've given me over 20 years. You won't get it back. <laughs> Thank you. The great news is this morning, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, it informs and hopefully reforms our praying. And he does so by telling us who God is, what God has done, what God will do, and how God has done it all so that our knowing God is the fuel and which propels us to pray and to praise. 
Here's the reality. It pushes us, this praying because of who God is and what we know about him. It pushes us to maturity because the reality is this. There is no neutral ground in our journeys with Christ. We are maturing our greatest words, the greatest part, greatest teaching on biblical sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is a quick definition and reminder is God's right and power to do all that he declares to do. Psalm 115 describes that. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. We have to get to that point that he does whatever he pleases and that is good and different than when you and I do whatever we please. The sovereignty of God is that whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases himself. He is never trapped or cornered to do something in which he himself cannot rejoice. Romans 8 tells us it pleased him to kill his own son. John 10 said it pleased him to lay down his life because of his own good pleasure, Jesus said. And in verses 3 through 14, we see exactly what pleased God. In his great sovereignty, every spiritual blessing he gave those who know him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption. He redeemed us by the great blood of Christ. He forgave all our sins. He lavished upon us grace upon grace and wisdom and insight. We obtained an inheritance. We were his inheritance. The crown jewel of his creation, he sealed us with his spirit. That has pleased the Lord. We are glad that God is a sovereign God. And whatever he does, he does to please himself. So Paul says, for this reason, I pray to God by praising God for what he has done and is doing in the lives of these Ephesians. And here it is that we see a great, great spiritual truth. That the sovereignty of God does not nullify prayer. It actually energizes prayer. There is a great danger in some strains of Christianity, and I've been around it, where people believe in the great sovereign God that we speak of. Therefore, they take this very passive approach and say, you know what? No need me praying. God's going to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, whatever he wants. Paul said, no, no, no. Because God has acted and intervened very graciously in the lives of these Ephesian Christians, I pray pray to God by praising God. Paul thinks about all of what God's sovereignty has accomplished for us who believe in Christ, and it makes him want to praise. Here's why. He sees their salvation and their life change. The word for faith is their salvation. The life change transformation is love, how they love each other. And he's just saying, Lord, your gracious intervention into the lives of dead men and women who are totally depraved and sinful at their hearts, you did that. You did it in me, and you're doing it in them. And for that, I praise you. 
It was God who was pleased to save them. It was God who is pleased to change them. And so Paul praises with great thanksgiving our sovereign God. Here's a place to start for you and I as we learn to be great prayers. We look around at God's activity in our lives and the lives of this body, and we raise our hands and hearts to God in praise. This is church game-changing stuff here. If that becomes crucial, consistent part of our lives in this body. Next, Paul prays that God's sovereign purposes will be realized or accomplished. Verses 17 through 19a. Read with me here. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart, this is a prayer now, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So here Paul is praying that God's sovereign purposes will be realized, that it just won't go over their heads, it won't bounce off of their skulls. Just as Christians nowadays, what do we do? We pray, come Lord Jesus. Why do we do that? Because we know God in his great sovereignty has said that he will return. Paul here says God's going to continue to work in the lives of the Ephesians and like what he's done for them. And for that, I'm going to pray for that continued work. Just because God chose them or us doesn't mean we don't pray. God has chose us, and Paul says, that is what motivates me to pray that he would, his people, would realize all that he has done and all that is he is doing. And here's what Paul prays quickly. He first prays that God, that the people in Ephesus, those who know Christ, would know God better. Verse 17, he uses the phrase in the knowledge of him. In verse 18, he says, so that you may know. And as this is why it's so important. A.W. Tozer, and I put this note in, uh, quote in your notes, puts it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I can tell you from personal experience, the illustrations are uncountable about how many lies I've thought about God, even as a believer. Folks, we are not just to accumulate facts about God. Paul's prayer is that we might know him, that's the word, experience him, walk in intimacy with him, and in turn, that's what ultimately changes us. So when in doubt about what to pray for yourself or others, one cry to God is, God, help me know you better. Under that, knowing God better, there's two little nuggets here that I really love. One is the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and the second one is the eyes of our hearts have been enlightened, as Paul wrote both of those phrases. Here, the spirit of wisdom and revelation uh, 
before we get there, let's first notice who God was praying to. He uses this phrase, the Father of glory. Paul is letting us know, in some ways, this model prayer that we need to understand who our deity is. This is not pluralism. It is the Father of glory. As he says in verse 17, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way to phrase that would be the most glorious Father or the Father himself is the source or the fountainhead of all glory. That's who we're praying to. That's encouraging, is it not? And in that phrase that he uses, there's two character qualities of God that the Apostle Paul lays out for us. One, he calls him Father. That says to us nearness. He is near. We learned in Hebrews, he is near, he hears, and then glory, which is transcendence or the one who is over the entire universe. It is so important for you and I to understand at a high level who it is we're praying to because it's impossible to honor him as we ought unless we know who he is. And here's the deal. The father of glory is fully committed to his glory. And therefore, he's fully committed to making you Christ-like because that glorifies him. One of the most encouraging passages in all the Bible is Ephesians 1.6, that God will what? Complete in you what he began. He's more committed to your growth and change than you are because he's more committed to his own glory. So then Paul uses this first phrase, spirit of wisdom and revelation. Here Paul is asking that the Holy Spirit would illuminate their minds and hearts concerning who God was and what he has done in Christ. This word wisdom I mentioned a few weeks ago, it means to grow in wisdom and how to live in God's universe as to please him. This wisdom has a Christ-centered way of thinking. Monty talked about captive, uh, taking thought every captive thought to rebuke lies, a Christ way of center of thinking and seeing the world via through the lens of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, I did not come to you with the wisdom of man, right, but the wisdom of God. And this, this wisdom uh, of this age, he says, the wisdom of man will actually pass away. And then what Paul actually tells the the Corinthians, that this spirit of wisdom and revelation will allow them to see eternal things, to see life through an eternal lens. Here's how he puts it. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That God wants us to have this sanctified imagination, biblically informed, about who he is and eternal things so that we might understand and live it out here. And then he uses the word revelation. Again, think illumination. For the Holy Spirit to reveal more of himself and his ways through, to us through his word because it is the Holy Spirit's job to take the things of glory and bring them down to you and I, to our minds and hearts. And so Paul is praying, God, do that for me, for this body, for believers. 
that God would open up the scriptures more and more to us. And, and, and I'll just, as a little parenthesis here, here's what's amazing. When we're praying and obeying, when we're in that sweet spot, God opens up more and more and more. And when we're not praying and not obeying, he's like, no, you got to learn some things first before we move forward. This book is the revelation of an almighty, infinite God written to weak and finite people, and it can never be fully exhausted. Seminary for 100 years. You never get to the bottom of it. We need illuminated revelation, just not gathering spiritual facts because we are sinful and sin is a barrier for us, for our understanding. Certainly our minds are small, our hearts are dark and hard, and therefore there is no road where our raw intellect is enough to know God. God, help me know you through this Wisdom and revelation. Secondly, he uses a phrase, the eyes of our hearts enlighten. Paul's asking that God would grant us the eyes of our heart to know him. Think of spiritual eyes. It is the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 119 where he prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. How many times have you prayed that before you open the scriptures to cry out to God? I'm telling you, it sets it all up. Ephesians 4, 17, Paul connects the futility of our minds with us having hard hearts before we come to know him. And here he prays for soft, tender hearts, teachable hearts that would absorb God's truth and then apply it. Paul is some ways praying that our spiritual faculties are attuned to receive what God has done and who he is. Carson again puts it this way. We will never grow in the knowledge of God the way we ought to if we do not ask God for such things. Some ways the question is, are we hungry? Are we hungry? Are we needy? And we say, God, I need to see with your eyes. Obviously, this praying that God would continue to do what he's already began in these believers since sealing them with the Spirit, that is happening. That's what Paul's praying for. And specifically here, Paul wants them to know three very crucial truths that I've listed out for you. And the first one is the hope of their calling. The hope of their calling. Notice it's his calling. It's simply a comprehensive theological term that includes eternity past all the way through eternity future. There's nothing outside of those two categories. His calling is eternity past, everything in between, and eternity future. He wants us to comprehend what it means to place our confident expectation in God in light of what he has done for us in Christ, both in our past and today and in our future. One writer put it this way, this, this hope of our calling, it is the doctrines of salvation, 
justification, sanctification, and glorification. It's all of them. To understand God's plan for his people so we can live that out this side of eternity. To live confident today because of what God did in the past, verses 3 through 14. To live confident today because of what he's doing in you in the present. And to live confident today of what he will do for us in the future. At the end of the day, here's what it is. It is an anticipation and an expectation that you and I will be presented to Christ because of his righteousness without stain or wrinkle, holy and blameless because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So that's the first crucial truth. The second crucial truth that Paul prays that believers would know is the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. Now, I'm already taught last week, and I mentioned it earlier, that yes, uh, we have an inheritance, but, but, but really, this text is teaching us we are what? God's inheritance. It means just that. Believers are God's inheritance, and Paul is praying that we understand what God has made us through his redeeming work for us to understand what it means to be his people, what it means to belong to God, what it means to know the spiritual wealth that we possess, that we are not dirt poor living on demonic street. We are his crown jewel, as I mentioned. That We are the folks in whom the Father, think about this, has given to the Son. We are a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's mind-blowing. That's God's value of his people. And that is a, our value is established in the value of Jesus. And here's key. To you nice folks out there, which I don't fall in that category, I got other issues, mean as a rattlesnake. But to you nice folks, we need reminding here. <laughs> We're not valuable because of some intrinsic quality that we bring to the table or somehow God's lucky to have us on his team. We're valuable because we've been identified with Christ and chosen in Christ. Again, Carson says it beautifully. He says, if we maintain this vision before our eyes of who we are, God's inheritance, surely, surely we will be concerned to live in line with this unimaginable high calling. Yes, who you are is a great motivation and knowing that to living that out. Man, I'll just say this, understanding this, sometimes people are afraid to really believe it because they're afraid it will make them strut and it will make them arrogant. If that's your take, you don't understand it. This makes us humble and submissive to our king. The third crucial truth is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's what Paul is praying here. Yes, Paul wants us to know about God's power, but he's not going to unpack exactly how that power plays itself out practically in day-to-day -day life until chapter 3. 
Here, Paul is trying to describe God's infinite and unlimited power. And it, it's sort of crazy. You read commentators and you, you look at the text. Uh, many of them said, most of them said that Paul here is trying to describe something that's undescribable. <laughs> so how does he do it? He stacks on top of each other words for power. Immeasurable greatness, power, great might. I mean, he's just like, man. He's like he's throwing verbal haymakers to describe what's really human and humanly impossible to describe. But what's clear here, even if he's having a hard time certainly fully describing God's power, is he wants the readers and us who know Christ to know that God's power is a resource for us. Look <laughs> what he says. Yes, God is the almighty God, but Paul wants us to know this. God is an almighty God for who? You. For us, the text says. The eternal God who is filled with raw, unfettered, immeasurable power is ours to draw from. <laughs> and yet I am so lazy and hard at times that I, I fail to draw anything from him or ask anything of him. The eternal God is to be drawn from. And here's the deal. That won't mean much. It just won't. And you won't apply it and I won't apply it unless we really know the depths of our hearts that you and I are weak and needy and sinful, like when we start getting that, we start using God or going to God as a resource for great power. Paul said in Romans 7 that nothing good dwells in him. He knew that. Paul said in 1 Timothy, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. And guess what? He meant it. I've actually had people argue with me and say, but Paul really didn't mean that. He was just, he was so spiritual. He just didn't want to intimidate people and he wanted to encourage people that, hey, I struggle with sin too, but he really didn't. No, 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 no. He really believed he was the worst of all sinners because that's exactly what happens as we get more intimate with Christ. We see our sin clear and we see, we're like, ha, but he loves me. Paul refuses to settle for a Christianity that is full of orthodoxy and yet dead in its orthopractice or orthopraxy. It's beautiful stuff. Lastly, our last point here, Paul declares and describes God's sovereign power. Let me read these passages to you. Nineteen B, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him 
who fills all in all. So Paul here declares and describes God's great sovereign power. And after wanting his people to know him better through his unlimited power, Paul now tells us about his power. And, and in some ways it's like Paul's trying to say to them and us, I want to prove to you that this power that I speak of that's a resource for you is actually true. And I don't know about you, but if you asked me to speak of God's power, I would probably start in a place of creation, right? God speaks and everything happens, and that's biblical, and that's a, certainly a great display of his power. But Paul here seeks in some ways the most glorious representations of that power. And the first thing he says, it is the power exerted when Christ was raised. This kind of power is the destroyer of death and sin. One writer said it mocks the death of death. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 3. That I may know him and the power of the resurrection, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Praying for this power in our lives is a beautiful way and a crucial way in which you and I press forward into maturity in Christ. The second illustration he gets or gives is the power exerted in the enthroned Christ, verse 20. Notice he says, they're being seated at the right hand of God. And here's what you need to know about that. That assumes Christ's ascension from the earth, and he sits at the right hand of the Father on his heavenly throne. And biblically, the right hand is a metaphor for honor, for victory, for authority, and power. Notice that he is seated... Unlike the priests in the temples who were always walking around in the temple in the Holy of Holies and never sat down because the shedding of blood and forgiveness of sin was never done, but our God is seated at the right hand because his work is done, is finished, accomplished by his death and resurrection. And Christ has been exalted to this place of great honor and authority. The tragedy of the cross is now the triumph of the throne. Ephesians 2, 6, Paul says, he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. <laughs> that ought to blow your socks off. Yes, you and I are still here. Touch yourself. You're still here. But because he is there and you and I are in him, we're actually there and that will ultimately be our final destination. So Paul, is that power of the enthroned Christ. And then lastly, the power exerted over everything for the church. Paul is saying that this raised and enthrones Jesus, enthroned Jesus rules over all. Again, he is sovereign. He rules over the seen and the unseen. We'll see in chapter 6 even, he rules over Satan and his baddest demons. And he also rules into the age to come. Jesus, this is the way I would put it, he ain't on no lawn chair roasting marshmallows drinking Coke Zero. He's sitting 
on a throne. His humiliation was in his incarnation, but his his humiliation gave way to his exaltation where he reigns forever and ever. Christ is head over all, but Paul tells us here very specifically that he's also what? Head of the church, his body. And because of that, he is in the very place to ensure with 100% certainty that God's sovereign power for the good of his people, of what he has done and what he is doing in them. Not a drop of rain, writers have said for years, can fall outside of God's sovereignty and connected to his great love through Christ, it brings us to a place, I believe, Paul believes, and I want you to believe and experience, a place we are motivated to approach the throne of his great sovereign God and pray our guts out according to his great purposes and plans for those who know him. I don't know how else I can motivate myself or you to pray than to use this text right here to do that. So for our so what this morning, I want to take a few minutes and I want to lead us in a time of prayer. In doing so, I want you to get with at least one other person, maybe three, okay, two or three people, you know, where they're gathered, (laughs) and I want you to get with them, and I'm going to give you three promptings here to pray. And as you think about, the first one is, is praise. Paul tells us, let me go back a minute in Ephesians 6, that we're in a spiritual war, We're going to continue to unpack that and connect our text to that. We're in a constant battle. As Monty talked about last week, to take every thought captive to Christ, to numb and nullify the lies of the evil one to us. And our job is to wage war. And we don't shoot a gun. We don't swing a sword. We wage war by getting on our knees. And we thank God, think about that, that he saved us. Bell Dorm, 1982. Why in the world he would save me? I have no idea. It's mind-blowing. So this morning, I want you to just grab somebody. I want you to just praise him. Just thank him that he sought you and bought you and brought you to himself. Take a minute to do just that. God for what he's done in your life saving you and working in your life but also thank him for the lives of what he's doing in this body for others you know both
Secondly, pray to God that he would open your eyes that you might see wondrous things from his word. But there's a caveat in that prayer. You got to open his word. (laughs) Cry out to God. Lord, help me be a man or woman in your word while I lean on you and cry out to you to let me see all that you've done and are doing and will do in my life. Pray that for yourself and this body. Lastly, pray, Lord, help me to understand the hope of your great calling, purpose, and plan for my life. Help me understand, pick one of these, the riches of our inheritance in Christ and the great power to us to believe. Pick one of those and pray that God would let you understand that in a way that would be life-transforming. Take a minute to pray that for you in this body. if you would this morning Lord we come to you this morning and I pray that you would teach us to praise you and to pray to you thanksgiving and supplication I'm grateful for this morning that had adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication petition teach us to pray based on what you've done for us in Christ. Teach us to pray based on what you are doing for us in Christ. And teach us to pray our guts out in great praise to you for what you will do for us in Christ. Use prayer for ourselves and this body to change, fundamentally change our church. That Lord, we need you. We cry out for you. We are walking intimately with you. We are clean before you. And Lord, we, if we're growing in Christ, we love you more today than we did years ago. And here's why, because we know how much you love.
love us more. Lord, we are grateful, grateful for all that you've done for us. We ask that in Christ's name, amen.